Welcome to the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. To learn more about Salem Alliance, including house churches, gathering times, and other resources, visit us online at salemalliance.org. Today's talk is given by Steve Fowler. Well, good morning, Salem Alliance. Um, as the song goes, uh, the weather outside is frightful, but the fire is so delightful. I hope you're around a fire on this uh, cold Sunday morning. Uh, obviously, because of, of the weather, we've had to make some adjustments. And uh, you're, you're getting me today on this day after Christmas. There's no band. There's no music. I mean, I could try and make music, but I don't think you would appreciate it. Um, but t- today we want to make sure that you get a chance to uh, hear from God as the church gathered in homes this day after Christmas. Um, we're, we've been used to that in the last couple of years, so we thought, why not? Why not try it again and do it this way? And so I want to wrap up our series that we've been doing called Upside Down, Upside Down Christmas. But just the first couple, couple things I want to just share with you. Um, a couple months ago, we gave you an update on our ministry fund giving and told you that we were right at about 90% uh, funded uh, through, it's about early October, and we were about 10% behind. Share that news with you, and I just want to say a big thank you to you because you have helped us close the gap over the last couple of months with your generosity. We've moved from 90% to now 97% of our ministry fund funded and uh, again, thank you so much for, for doing that. Uh, your, your gifts of time help make our vision of a city at peace with God. Uh, it makes it possible, and of course your giving does as well. So a big thank you to you. If you have the ability to help us close that gap, that 3% gap now, it's, it's shrunk quite a bit um, by the beginning of next year, 2022, January. That, that'd be awesome. But I just want to say a big thank you to you. And also let you know that our Christmas offering is something you can still give to. Uh, you can give via the, uh, the offering boxes in our lobby when our building's opened up again. You can mail your gifts in. You can do that online. And again, that's going to battle homelessness. We wanted to give to those in our city who are helping with that as well as fund some of the things in our own ministry fund um, that would would tackle some of those causes. And of course, uh, give to our Clear Campaign. Uh, we've made a focus on this over the last years just to reduce as much debt as possible so that we can be nimble and responsive to all the things that God is calling us to. So thanks for your gifts to the Christmas offering. Appreciate that. I'm wrapping up our series called Upside Down Christmas. If you were here at the beginning, you heard Rob Basham get us started. He pointed us to really behold this God who always keeps his promises. Uh, he is a faithful God. Yet at the same time, as he keeps his promises, it doesn't mean we don't have to wait. Following God oftentimes means waiting. The next week I talked to us about the fact that following God is often difficult. We looked at the the journey of Mary and Joseph and their own story as it's it's, it's told for us in scripture and how difficult it was for them to uh, just obey and to follow all the things that God was calling them to. And Last weekend, Brian Candela did a great job talking to us about the importance of revelation and the managing, the managing of the tension between revelation and reason. We tend to be much more comfortable doing things that make sense to us, yet if you look at our heroes of the faith in scripture, as Brian pointed us uh, to this, that, that, that we walk by faith and not by sight. Oftentimes, things don't make sense to us until after we've stepped out in faith. And those lead to encounters with God. And so Brian did such a great job. If you didn't hear his message, I strongly urge you, encourage you to, to listen to his message. And today I'm wrapping up the series, and I want to talk to you, just let you know that you know, following God oftentimes seems 
counterintuitive, even confusing. I mean, for, for a moment, just imagine you're God and you're wanting to reveal yourself to the planet you've created, to, the, to, to all of humanity, and to let them know that you are reconciling them to yourself. This is your grand plan. This is, the, this is the apex, the climax of this plan to reconcile people back to yourself. And so how do you do it? In these days of technology, we have a lot of options. I mean, you could break into primetime TV. You could interrupt all the shows, all the streaming devices, and just put your message out there saying, I'm God, I want you to know that I love you so much, and I'm, I'm, I've made a way for you to be reconciled to me. That could be one way you could get the word out. Obviously, there's social media. Uh, again, there's, you could interrupt the internet. It doesn't matter what web page you're on. You could just take over screens on phones, on laptops, iPads, any kind of screen. And you could get the word out that you are here and that you are reconciling people to yourself. You could hang a massive surround sound system off the, off the moon, seven billion watt speakers and speaking in such authority and speaking with such a loud voice that earth is shaking, homes are rattling and, and people come out and they see you in the heavens and, uh, and their teeth are rattling, their knees are knocking as you're hearing, as they're hearing your voice say that you're God and you are reconciling people back to yourself. This is the climax of his, of his plan. I mean, pyrotechnic displays in the heavens. You could pull out all the stops. It seems like to us a, a great way to get the word out and let people know what you're up to. But God doesn't seem like he's all that interested in rattling and shaking the earth in such a way that people like are disturbed and confused and scurry out like ants out of an anthill, disturbed by someone who's uh, stepped on it, just, just afraid of, of, of what's about to happen. God doesn't seem to take that approach with us. He's much quieter. I mean, the story begins by God loving the world so much that he sends his son and his son comes as a vulnerable baby. A baby born in a barn. I'll never forget when Trina and I were expecting our first child. We were living in Northern California, the Bay Area, and as we were anticipating the birth of our first child, we did a lot of research on hospitals and tried to discover what, what, what's the best place to have a child? What's, where are the, where the most qualified medical professionals working at? And we talked to friends who had children and, and they made their recommendations. And after doing some research and, 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 and listening to people talk, we made our decision. We chose a hospital in Berkeley, California, Alta Bates. It was highly recommended, highly respected, and when our first child was born, Bethany uh, was born, uh, she was born at Alta Bates in Berkeley, California, and we're grateful for that because there were some significant uh, health issues. She was quickly whisked away to the NICU, to the neonatal ICU, and um, it was clean, it was professional, the, the best of technology was available for her so that uh, she could be cared for, and this is what parents do when they're going to give birth to a child. They, they want the most, in, in, their, in their opinion, the safest, the best birthing environment possible. And yet we get to the Christmas story 
and we read of Joseph and Mary making the trek from Nazareth to Bethlehem. They're looking for a hotel room. The hotels are booked. There's no room in motels. The only place that there is room is in a manger, a stable, a barn. God's son born in a barn. Well, that just seems so odd. The son of God is born in a barn. He's literally laid in a manger, a, a feeding trough for cattle. That's this feeding trough stained with the saliva of, of animals as they feed. That just doesn't seem like the way you'd want to make your entrance. You'd, you'd think that God would want his son born in a place that people later could come and visit. They could pay homage and they could say, this is where it all began and yet, The Son of God is born in a manger. And can we also just say that his birth announcement was weak? I mean, you may say, well, weak. I mean, angels singing in the sky. Yeah, there's angels singing in the sky, but just play this out for a moment. I mean, just think about that. This, this again, is the moment where God is going to come and his his plan, his ministry of reconciliation is going to be, redemption is is about to break in to our lives. And... And a choir is going to sing songs. And so probably for 100 to 200 years in heaven, there's been tryouts, auditions, and angels are auditioning for the choir. And an angel has been chosen among you know, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of others. And they've been practicing because they want to get this moment right because God is sending his son. Uh, God is taking on flesh. And this is an incredible moment. And so you have been auditioning. You have been practicing. And, and now the time has come. Gabriel is about to, to draw the cord and open up the curtain and you among thousands of other angels are going to sing your hearts out glory to God in the highest heaven and you're there in position and the curtain opens and you're in a field and there's a handful of shepherds sleeping in the field. I mean, who is in charge of publicity? And why a field? We, we should be in Carnegie Hall or we should be in Kodak Theater. We should be someplace that kind of just captures this moment. And why is the word not getting out? And these shepherds are sleeping. We're waking up and all this announcement to shepherds. And shepherds, by the way, they're not exactly in the center of communication circles. They aren't influential. In fact, in first century Israel, shepherds were not even allowed to testify in court because they weren't seen as credible witnesses. And the reason for that was, is because as they roamed the fields and pastures in their day, they were a little bit light-fingered. They were known to be thieves. Really, God, this This is your entry into announcing this good news that your son has come? A baby born in a barn? No no heavenly angelic Florence Nightingales in in the manger to make sure it all goes well? A a song being sung to shepherds who are on the margins of society? It doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. Is this the way to win the world? And... Let's talk about the name that's given to the Messiah. 
We know the name Jesus. We esteem the name of Jesus. We know that there is no other name by which someone may be saved. Yet in first century Israel, once again, um, this name in Hebrew, Yeshua, which in English should be translated Joshua, was really plain. Everyone named their babies Joshua. Joshua means Jehovah is salvation, is my salvation. Uh, It's a common name. It would be like naming your son Bob or Tom or Tim. No offense if that's your name, but it's a fairly common name. And why wouldn't God want his son to have a name that people would remember, a name that would stand out, a a name, you know, something Charlton Heston-like or a name like Jay-Z or Bono, something that people would remember. I mean, play this out in your mind. The shepherds who don't have that much credibility are going to a manger and seeing the Messiah in a feeding trough, staying with the saliva of cattle, and then they're leaving there and they're running through town, knocking on doors and announcing that Joshua's born, Joshua's born, or more likely, Bob Smith is born, Bob Smith is born, and people are wondering, who's knocking on our door in the middle of the night? And they were just our local shoplifter uh, sharing this news and we can't trust those guys anyways. I mean, I can't. Is this the way to win the world? It's strange. It's confusing. It's so counterintuitive. And yet it continues to get even stranger. I mean, okay, all that aside, perhaps God has a great family tree to help support his son. You know, to kind of get behind him, a, a tree free of scandal. I mean, this would be the case in a lot of countries that have royalty and monarchy. This is the case in England, um, which is why anytime there's scandal among the royals, it's big news. You want a family tree that's free of scandal, and so that this person who's stepping forward is stepping forward with his character, and this is the, the case of their family, their extended family, generation after generation. And yet, you look at Jesus' family tree, you look at the genealogies, which many people believe are the psalmonics of Scripture. This is what you read when you want to fall asleep at night. And you discover some really amazing things. Like in Jesus' family tree, there's a prostitute named Rahab, a detested Moabite named Ruth. Um, You have Bathsheba, who had an affair with David, and David in the line, and He's a murderer and an adulterer. And of course, there's Solomon, and Solomon had hundreds of wives and concubines and let Israel stray to worship other gods. And that's not super helpful if you're trying to make a case to people that this is the Son of God and a plan of redemption is being opened up for all people. And on, on top of that, uh, Joseph and Mary, we, we've talked about this, Joseph and Mary get off to a, a difficult start because uh, I mean, wouldn't you like to have been there when Mary came home from youth group and told her mom and dad that, um, that she was pregnant and then shared the news that you know, it was the son, it was, a, it was the Holy Spirit who hovered over her that the, so the son of God could be conceived. And I mean, mom and dad aren't really buying that story. We know Joseph isn't buying that story. Um, and, uh, and, and of course, they do end up, Joseph does end up believing because of his angelic visitation. Yet, 
an illegitimate child in first century Israel, uh, the law tells us that that person would not be allowed into the assembly uh, or, or their ancestors for the next 10 generations. There's quite a bit of stigma that goes with this entry of the Son of God into our world. But when ministry starts, I'm sure Jesus is going to just put all that behind him and start with the bang. And yeah, yeah, he does start with the bang. And as he begins his, his, his messianic ministry there in Israel, um, he's going to choose his disciples. We all know that when a president is elected, that they take great care in choosing their cabinet. They want to be surrounded with the, uh, the best brightest minds that that our country has to offer and uh, people free of scandal as well. And so Jesus um, is going to choose his cabinet, so to speak, and it seems like he goes down to the wharves and the docks to make his selection. I'm guessing that if you got too close, you could smell the aroma of, well, kind of a fishy scent, and you'd probably smell sweat. These were working class people and, and on his team are people who are just a little bit, well, they didn't really fit into the societal norms. You have a, a tax collector and you have a zealot, which in our day and age would be like taking uh, someone who is a, a bribe-taking IRS agent and putting them on your team or someone who leads a, a racial supremacist organization and choosing them to be on your cabinet. This is who Jesus surrounds himself with. And on top of that, his press secretary is a little bit wacko. I mean, he, he, he eats honey in the morning and apparently eats bugs at night. He wraps himself in a camel skin suit, uh, straps on a wide leather belt, goes out and preaches, tells the religious leaders that they're serpents and snakes, and at the end of his sermon, he dunks people in a river. I mean, this is all so completely odd. Is this the way to win the world? But perhaps it's at his moment where his life is in danger that God will make his move. Perhaps it's at this moment that God will get majestic and, and loud and unmistakable in sharing his plan for people to be redeemed and reconciled to himself. Jesus is arrested. Jesus is brought before the Sanhedrin, and he's going to be executed as a criminal. This could be the moment that the angels of heaven come sweeping down, brandishing their swords, and rescue Jesus And this moment. And you can forget about all the past indiscretions, so to speak, about how God is living out and working out his plan. It's in this moment that he could rescue Jesus and there would not be a doubt in all of Israel that Jesus, in fact, is the Messiah. But God doesn't do that. He lets his son die on the cross. Uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians says these words. Let me read them for us. He says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. You know, I, uh, I've never looked at the cross as being a message that was foolish. But if you look through Paul's eyes in those days and you think about what it felt like to have your hero, your Messiah, 
die on a cross. In our day and age, it would be better to think of, well, there are ways that people experience capital punishment in our world today. They go to the gallows and they hang. They stand before a firing squad. They receive a lethal injection. In some cases, there's an electric chair. We see a cross and we see the icon of the church. We put crosses on our, our buildings, the top of our buildings. In, in our worship center, we have a cross. People pound white ribbons to them when they are declaring this new um, discipleship journey that they are beginning with Jesus. Crosses are sacred to us, but in Jesus' day, the cross was a scandal. It was, it was shameful. Let me help us feel this for a moment because um, it, it might shed some light on what I'm trying to communicate. I mean, just take some of our hymns and take the cross out of it and put in the more modern modes of capital punishment. Think of the old hymns where we used to sing at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light and what if we sang at the electric chair, at the electric chair where I first saw the light? Well, well that's weird. Or what's even more strange, there's room at the cross for you. How about there's room in the gas chamber for you? Makes you cringe, doesn't it? Yet that's the scenario that we're seeing here. I mean, let me just read some scripture for us. 1 Corinthians, again, verses 22 and 23 Jews demand miraculous signs and Greek look for wisdom, but we preach Joshua electrocuted, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. First Corinthians chapter one, verses 22 to 23, with apologies. Or, first Corinthians chapter two, verse two. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus the Messiah and him electrocuted. It's, it sounds so strange, doesn't it? Yet this is what we are saying. This is what happened to our Messiah. And it was shameful. I would think that if God were trying to win the world, if he was seeking to reconcile people back to himself, his son would have died a noble death. You know, like, like, like that, that soldier who throws himself on the hand grenade and saves the lives of his platoon. Or that secret service agent who throws his body in front of an assassin's bullet and spares the life of a president. That's a noble, heroic death. Yet Jesus' death is the death of a criminal. I mean, what in the world is going on here? How are we supposed to win the world like this, God? A baby born in a barn, laid in a feeding trough. Angels showing up to nobody, sleeping in a field. A plain name. Witnesses who lack credibility. I mean, the scandal surrounding the birth. Jesus own disciples, a little bit odd and not fitting the norms, his press secretary, not exactly being politically correct. And of course, yes, his death, so shameful. What is happening here? 
Is this the way to win the world? Well, maybe this will help. It's September of 1984. I got down on one knee and asked my girlfriend at the time, Trina Holstey, to marry me. In my right hand, I had a ring. She said yes, for which I'm grateful, and I slipped the ring onto her finger. What if, in September of 1984, in the Sausalito Hills looking over San Francisco, the city, I got down on one knee with a ring in my right hand and a gun in my left? And what if I asked Trina to marry me and she had no choice but to say yes? Trust me, I'm, I'm making a point here. I mean, she would have been manipulated. She would have been forced. Her hand would have been forced to say yes. And after our wedding day, I would have been feeding every meal that she made to the dog first to make sure that it would live so I could live. Nobody wants to be in a relationship where someone is forced to love us. Friends, this is true for God. God seeks humanity to be reconciled to himself, but he is not going to force our hand. So much so that it appears, as you look at the Christmas story, he goes to great lengths to be sure that when we follow him, it's not because we were manipulated in any way. It's the choice to love his son and follow his son his son, without being pressed or forced or manipulated in any way, but a real choice of love. And that's how relationships function in the most healthy manner. And this is how God works. He refuses to force people's hand. He gives us choice. Yet at the same time, He's romancing us. He's alluring us. He's drawing us to himself. We get a picture of that in Hosea chapter 2, verse 14. I'm going to read that passage for us. Where God's speaking to his people and says, I will allure her back once again. I will lead her out in the desert and speak tenderly to her there. This romancing, this wooing, this alluring is what God does. In the Gospels, we're told that no one comes to the Father unless the Father draws them. There's this romancing that God is involved in, and he's giving us the dignity of choosing him or choosing our own way. In the 1930s, While Stalin was actively persecuting Christians, his forces came to Stavropol, a city there in Russia, and Bibles were confiscated. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Bibles were confiscated and placed in a warehouse outside of town. The Christians were then sent to the gulags, to to prison camps, where the, the largest percentage of them died for their faith. Fast forward several decades, Russia opens back up and missionaries get back into Russia. Yet there's a difficulty in getting Bibles uh, that are written in the Russian language and the, the getting them shipped from Moscow, it, just, it, it isn't going very well and there's this great need for Russian Bibles. Someone remembered that 
in a warehouse outside of town, Bibles had been confiscated and placed there. So the missionaries gathered one night and they prayed intensely for the courage for one of them to go to the Russian government officials and ask if the Bibles were there. And if they were there, could they take them and give them to the Russian people? Permission was granted. And the next day, trucks were driven out to the warehouse and day laborers were hired to take these Bibles that were in this warehouse and load them on trucks and take them back to the city of Stavropol. Day laborers were hired and among them was one individual, a college student, who was quite hostile to Christianity, a skeptic, agnostic. And he was in it just for the money of the day, the, 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 the labor of the day, uh, providing wages. And went out to the warehouse and began loading Bibles into trucks. And as the work was being finished and those thousands upon thousands of Bibles were placed in trucks, the missionaries were gathering their day laborers and they couldn't find this college student, this skeptic. So they began looking and they found him in the corner of the warehouse and he was sobbing. You see, at some point in the day, uh, he decided that he was going to steal a Bible for himself. And so he grabbed one of those Bibles, found a quiet place in the warehouse, and when he opened the cover, what he discovered was the name, a name written in the Bible, and it was the name of his grandmother. In needle in a haystack-like fashion, this college student had grabbed one Bible among thousands and just so happened to grab the Bible of his grandmother who died in a prison camp and it wrecked him. And God was alluring and wooing and romancing this young man into a friendship with him, reconciling him to himself, not forcing his hand upon him, but letting him know that he saw him. Friends, this is our God. Why does God go through all these odd ways of his son entering to the world? It's so that our hand will not be forced, so that in fact we indeed have the dignity of choosing or not choosing him. So think about this for a moment. If you are a Christ follower on this Christmas weekend, you are a Christ follower not because you're brilliant or not because you're wise. That's certainly not the case for me. It's not the case for you, for us. The reason that you are a Christ follower today is that God saw you and he romanced you and allured you and came after you and made it possible for you to be a follower of his son and you have redemption because of this incredible love that God has for you. Jesus would say, you didn't choose me, I chose you. But he chose us in such a way that our hand was not forced. And God goes to great lengths to make sure that that is the case. Secondly, you might know someone who is not yet a Christ follower. Think about God's approach to us. And perhaps your call is to model God's approach in a non-coercive or non-manipulative way, helping that person you care about be magnetically pulled to the heart of the Father. Friends, it's upside down.
God doesn't hang a seven billion watt stereo system off the moon, shaking homes. He doesn't break into the internet. He doesn't break into primetime TV. He's so much quieter and he does it because he doesn't want your hand to be forced. Now, here's a couple ways I think we need to apply this, this Christmas. The first one is this, recognizing the fact that God has indeed drawn you to himself Friends, I want to encourage you to set aside some time to express gratitude to God. Take some time today to express gratitude to God for his pursuit of you. If you are a Christ follower today, then the gift of worship that you give back to him is simply gratitude and thanksgiving. He has made it possible and he's done it in such a way that you are not manipulated, you are not forced. You were romanced. Here's the second way that I think we can apply this upside down approach of God. There are likely some friends of yours, family, that don't know Jesus. Would you identify two or three of those folks who don't know Jesus and begin praying Hosea 2.14 like prayers? Remember, I'll read it again for us. I will allure her back once again. I will lead her out into the desert and speak tenderly to her there. What a great passage to pray over someone that you love, that you care about, and you would like to see brought into a friendship with Jesus. Lord, would you allure this person back? Could be a prodigal son or daughter. Might be a grandchild. Might be a family member, your mom or your dad, coworker, neighbor. Would you allure them? Would you speak tenderly to them? Would you create a divine appointment much like that college student in the corner of a warehouse stumbling upon a Bible that used to be his grandmother's? And you could just begin to just pray really in the heart of God for people that he would draw, that he would woo, that he would allure and bring people into a life-giving relationship with his son. This is the gift of Christmas. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. God, this is verse 17. We don't get to verse 17 too often. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Friends, he's still in the business of saving lives. Rejoice that your life is saved this Christmas and begin praying in the heart of Jesus for those who still do not know. Hey, thanks for joining us on this Christmas weekend. Again, I apologize that because of weather we've had to change our plans, but I just bless you today with the joy of Christmas, the, the gratitude of Christmas, and, and an increased wonder and awe of who God is in this upside-down Christmas season. You might find yourself waiting. You might find life is difficult. You might find things as not being reasonable. And you might think that things are just not going the way that you would like to see them go. I hope this series, Upside Down Christmas, is a blessing to you as you continue to follow your God, who is so surprising and at the same time sovereign. Grace and peace to you. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks for listening to the Salem Alliance podcast. We hope you have been challenged and inspired. 
Salem Alliance is a community of believers located in downtown Salem, Oregon, and we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. To experience other messages and discover more about who we are, please visit salemalliance.org or download the Salem Alliance app. And again, thanks for listening.